0: Twenty second, nineteen ninety nine. Nine year old Kira Steinhardt goes missing on her way home from school. The next day, the perp is tracked down and will be charged with her abduction. Soon, he would not only be charged with her murder, but several others. This is the case of Leonard John Fraser. Hi, I'm your host, Cambo. Grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. Last week, we had a horrific story of the rape and murder of two bigger schoolgirls. This one this week isn't any less horrific. Now, I'm also sorry for the last few weeks. I have been a couple of days late uploading the episodes, and I will be going away this weekend. So I'm going to just have a little bit of a break this weekend, and hopefully the following, you'll have another episode. Anyway, this is the story of Leonard John Fraser, another serial criminal that they just couldn't put away long enough and would go on to murder at least four females and he's suspected of several more. Now, not only have I sourced info from court records for tonight's episode, but also I bought this book. It's called Things a Killer Would Know, the true story of Leonard Fraser. Now, this is by Paula, uh, I think her name's Donovan. So when I come across conflicting information, I'll refer to Paula's book and court records rather than news reports and the like. And for those that are interested, I did buy it online at Google Play Books. I'm not sure if it's still in print, but I can tell you I had to sort of skim through it all. I haven't read it all the way through. But after tonight, if you're interested in true crime, you want to read an absolutely incredibly researched true crime book. Uh, This is one to have a look. That's Paula Donovan and uh, Things a Killer Would Know, the true story of Leonard Fraser. Okay, let's get on to it. Now, Fraser was the sort of bloke that would commit a crime, do some time, get out, and offend again. Not only would he offend again, but as in other cases I've brought you before, His offending escalated from theft to assault, to rape and then murder. Fraser was born on the 27th of June 1951 at Ingham in the north of Queensland, almost halfway between Townsville and Cairns. Fraser reckoned his father was abusive and would beat him up. However, his family said it was more his mother that handed out the discipline as his father was often away. In 1952, his three-year-old brother was riding on his father's tractor while they worked the fields. He slipped off and was squashed by the big rear tyres and died. In 1957, age six, he and the family moved to Mount Druitt in Sydney's western suburbs. Now, he did move to Sydney's western suburbs and he did stay in Mount Druitt, but also he may have stayed in Liverpool. Hi to everybody at Mount Druitt and Liverpool. He was disruptive in class, dropping out of high school aged 14, barely able to read and could hardly write his own name. When he did write his name, he did it with wide eyes and tongue poking out to the side. In later life, he would falsely claim he witnessed his brother's death and he would blame it on why he behaved as he did, or partly to blame, But this would be one of the many lies that would easily flow out of his mouth his whole life. As a teenager, he would steal anything that wasn't bolted down and started showing signs of aggression towards females that wouldn't wouldn't let him have his way, threatening rape. With a head like a smashed crab, he would often get knocked back and with a very low intellectual level, he wasn't about to win them over in conversation. In fact, a lot of his relationships would be with women that had similar intellectual disabilities or abilities. He ended up in a home for boys, which back in the day must have been a horrific adventure. Even his parents thought he would probably be worse off in the home as he got to mix with other troubled boys that had been sent there. These places were known for their brutality and where not only the older boys, but also the staff would have their way with the younger ones. As the younger ones got older, they did the same to the newcomers. After two years at the boys' home, Fraser would emerge still stupid, but now cunning, incredibly evil and with a short temper. Fraser had aliases such as Lenny, Lenny the Loon, John Leonard Fraser, Homo and Text. Tex, but probably the worst, is the Rockhampton Rapist. By the early 70s, Fraser was living in Sydney after being released from prison in Queensland in 1972. He'd gone to Queensland to make a new start after being released from prison in New South Wales, but ended up in prison back inside within no time for theft. So he's back in Sydney, 1972. I guess he was going to make another new start. It's here that on the morning of the 17th of October 1971, Fraser, after having a fight with his flatmate, stormed out and ended up at the Botanical Gardens in Sydney. Now, I forgot to mention there may be a few trigger warnings tonight. Anyway, here he noticed a woman with a street directory, if everybody remembers what one of those are. She was a 37-year-old French tourist. She was married with two kids she approached Fraser and asked for directions. Fraser either couldn't understand her English or whatever, but he pointed her in the direction of a path she was walking along. When she passed him, he grabbed her from behind, covering her mouth to mute her screams. He dragged her behind a banana tree, beating her about the face, fracturing her cheekbone, blackening her eyes and breaking her nose. He ripped off her clothes and violently raped her, so viciously that she would never be able to have children again. She passed out, and when Fraser finished, he stole some money from her purse, got up and ran off, leaving behind a bloodstained hanky and one yellow and white thong. Now, that's thong, as in flip-flop, not g-string. Now, the gardens are huge, and there can be parts of it where there are very few people. The French tourist laid there for half an hour, stunned at what happened before she got help and police were called. Now, you can imagine seeing someone walking around with blood on their clothes and with one thong, something you would find strange, if not suspicious. However, police had no suspects and Fraser would be in prison again doing five years with 18 months non-parole, for assault and armed robbery, he got out 18 months later on the on June the 19th, 1974, and on the 11th of July at St Mary's in the western suburbs of Sydney, he grabbed a woman, twisted her arm up her back, and dragged her up an embankment onto the side of the road and raped her. On the 17th of July, he went into a Mount Druitt dry cleaners, asked for his dry cleaning. And when the woman went to the back of the shop to look for it, he followed her, grabbed her, twisted her arm up her back and attempted to rape her. Luckily, customers came into the shop and he fled the scene. On the 20th of July, he saw a woman walking on Mavis Street, Rudy Hill, again in Sydney's West. He spoke to her, then punched her in the face. She fell down an embankment near a creek. As he fought with her, She told him she would be happy to have sex with him. He didn't have to rape her. She told him he could take her back to his place for sex. And so they both got up and started walking towards his house. As soon as she had the chance, she ran off and banged on the door of a nearby house. Fraser again fled the scene, but this time police would find his wallet near the creek where the attack had started. So it must have fallen out of his pocket. Quickly, Police rounded him up. Fraser would confess to all three attacks that he had committed since getting out of jail just weeks before. And also, he would confess to the rape of the French tourist two years before that. He would be sentenced to 21 years with seven years non-parole. And he was just 23 years old. Now, prison time seemed not to worry, Leonard. It gave him three meals a day, accommodation... And he didn't have to work for it. So guess what? Sentenced in 1974, to 21 years with seven years non-parole. For all those vicious rapes. Well, they let him out in seven. I mean, fuckity fuck fuck. What is wrong with the judicial system? He goes back to Queensland. After hearing of his grandmother's death in a car accident, he took out his anger by attacking a woman who, who had a car for sale in her backyard. Now this was weird. When they were in the house and she'd let him in, as he would told her he was a friend of her husband's, he grabbed her and they struggled. She fell to the floor and Fraser said, I'm not going to hurt you. I'm just trying to prove a point. She got up and told him to call her husband. He did. He called her husband and he said, I hope you're not going to kill me. I just wanted to prove a point that somebody could break in and rape your missus. I mean, what the, what the fuck? Anyway, she told him to wait for her husband, but he fled soon after. He did two months for this attack. I mean, two months. What the fuck? Anyway, why didn't she call the cops as soon as he released her? Or, or just run down the street? I don't know. I'm just baffled by this one. Now, he's on parole in New South Wales at this time. Remember the 21 years and seven years non-parole? So he's on parole. And of learning of this attack, his parole was revoked. But guess what? It was not a policy of the New South Wales Parole Board or the police to extradite parolees from Queensland or anywhere. So they didn't worry about it. Anyway, for a few years, Fraser would behave after getting involved with a woman at the caravan park he was living at and he got he actually got a job on the 30th of July 1985 this couple of years of good behavior would end Fraser had been stalking a young woman for days she would walk along the beach at Shoal Point Mackay every morning Fraser would watch her with a pair of binoculars Fraser approached her from behind and struck up a conversation. Fraser then, as always, grabbed her from behind and she struggled to get free. She pleaded not to be dragged into the bushes and told Fraser he could come to her place for sex rather than here. But Fraser had been tricked by that before and he continued to rape her. After the attack, he fled to a friend's house to try and get an alibi. The girl would pick out Fraser from a photo and with other forensic evidence, he would be sentenced to 12 years and he's only 34. This time, he would do the full sentence, but towards the end, he was put in a very low security prison farm. Here, He would often be found in no-go areas, just walking around. He was once found mowing the grass of a nearby resident and later turned up at the same house Asking for a cup of coffee. I mean, what the fuck? Prison officers complained that he was a serial rapist and should be in a higher security facility. They were sure one day he would kill. He was released in 1996 and he hooked up with a pen pal that he had in prison. It was cancer sufferer Marie Shivers. She would be diagnosed as terminal and on one hospital visit, Marie and Fraser went to the hospital chapel to pray. Once in there, he locked the door and raped her. She would die just two weeks later from the cancer. Now, she only told her mother and a social worker of the the attack days before she died. Police weren't informed. He would end up in Mount Morgan, a tiny town near Rockhampton in northern Queensland. It was once a big gold mining town, but now it was a shadow of its former self. Here, Fraser changed his M.O. Instead of grabbing women and girls from behind and raping them, he would hang out in the front of his place and chat up the passing schoolgirls and offer them drugs and booze. Eventually, it was known by teenagers as the place to go to get weed and drinks and booze, he would often spike their drinks and rape the girls. He would pick on those that were mentally challenged and threaten to kill them if if they went to police or told their parents. It's believed he raped up to 16 females while he was in Mount Morgan. He was run out of town when he was busted trying to drag a girl home to his place after spiking her drink. He got a flogging by the town's locals who'd finally had enough of him. He moved to Rockhampton in 1998. Here, he shacked up with an intellectually challenged girl called Chrissy Rait. She was only about 19, and Fraser was now 47. They would move from place to place as the people they moved inward, in with would throw them out over the constant fighting and domestic violence. Chrissy would be subject to not only violence but his relentless need for sex. At one place, Fraser and Chrissy were thrown out after he was seen fucking his pet dog in the backyard. Now, when they moved, instead of taking the dog with them, Fraser gave it rat poison and it died. I mean, what a piece of shit. Now, let's move on to the 31st of August, 1998. Natasha Ryan is a troubled 14-year-old schoolgirl that attended North Rockhampton State School. She'd run away from home six weeks before in June and had hung out at her sister Donna's boyfriend's place. His name was Scott Black. He would be charged with willful obstruction of police when he told them he didn't know where she was and ordered to stay away from any Ryan family members. So on the 31st of August, Jenny, Natasha's mum, dropped her off at school in the morning. When she went to pick her up in the afternoon, she was nowhere to be found. After calling all her friends and driving around to look for her, she went to the police to report her missing. As she'd run away just six weeks before, police told Jenny to wait and see if she turns up. On the 3rd of September 1998, with no sign of Natasha, Jenny reported her daughter missing. Scott Black was on the top of their suspect list, but try as they may, every time they fronted up and checked out his place, there was no sign of Natasha and no evidence that a female was living there. Now, three years later on Natasha's 17th birthday, remember, she's only 14 and this older bloke is shacked up with her. On her 17th birthday... With her still missing and presumed dead, a memorial service was held in Bundaberg. Now, this was in 2001. So we need to go back a few years again now. Now, we need to talk about 39-year-old Julie Turner. Julie was born in Townsville, Queensland, and she had a good childhood, although her wheelchair-bound mother abandoned her when she was two and her father put her in the care with relatives he was too busy to, with work to care for her. She had a private school education, and she wanted to be a singer. When she got pregnant, she met Ron Turner, who was happy to be the father of the baby she was expecting. Eventually, their marriage broke down, and she met a guy called Steve, who was into stealing cars. This relationship broke down as well, with several on and off's. Steve would tell Julie that he had stopped stealing cars in an attempt to maybe get her back. Eventually Steve died in an accident trying to outrun police in, you guessed it, a stolen car. Julie liked to party but drank socially. Now she started to drink heavily. In 1994 she met Michael McConaughey who was having marriage difficulties of his own and moved in with him within a month after his separation. By 1998, Julie and McConaughey were having troubles of their own, and both were drinking quite a bit. On the 27th of December 1998, after another fight, Julie went into town to the Airport Liberty's nightclub. She needed a break from home and a bit of fun. She got there at around 10pm, a little tanked from drinking most of the day. She requested her favourite song, Runaway Train, but the DJ didn't have it. In the end, she sang a few karaoke songs so badly that the barman got out, got up to try and help her out. To those that she spoke to that night, she complained about her de facto McConaughey. When she ran out of money in the early hours of the morning, she passed the bouncer who asked if she wanted a taxi. She told him she had no money, so he gave her about five bucks in change. She told him that she would see him next week and walked out to get a taxi. She never made it to the taxi. Her de facto at first wasn't worried that she didn't come home, but after a few days, he went to the police station and filed a missing persons report. Police did everything in their power to find Julie and two weeks later contacted the homicide squad. Her ex-husband was ruled out quickly, but doubt surrounded her de facto McConaughey. There was domestic violence history between the couple, and he became the number one suspect. Now, we move on to Beverly Lego, born in Sydney in 1963. Her parents split up soon after she was born and ended up living with her grandparents. Eventually, her auntie and uncle, who had just had a baby took her in and she moved to Amamoor, north of Gympie in Queensland. She did well at school academically and won many trophies in sport. She got married to Steve Warnham in 1984, but his work would take him to various parts of the country and things would soon sour as the long-distance relationship made Beverly lonely. Steve would call every night, but by July 1985, Beverly stopped answering the phone. Steve drove back home, but Beverly wasn't there. He filed a missing persons report, but Beverly was found shacked up with a guy in a caravan park. As her marriage crumbled, she answered an ad for a modelling job, and within no time, she was flying to Singapore. However, her family heard nothing from her until Foreign Affairs contacted them and told her she'd been arrested after being found off her face at Changi Airport. She eventually got back to Brisbane in a wheelchair, zoned out like a zombie. The modelling job was actually fake and she'd been drugged up and used as a sex slave and drug mule. Anyway, mentally she was pretty fucked up and it would take ages for her to recover. But she would never be the same. She moved back to Brisbane where she met Richard Grit. They moved in together very quickly and she taught him to read and write. But grit was beating her up, but Beverly refused to leave him. On the 1st of March, Beverly walked into her bank to try and withdraw some money. Actually, it was an advance on her social security, so she had to talk to the manager. He wasn't in and she was asked to come back in an hour. Beverly never went back. That night, her landlord filed a missing persons report. On the 2nd of March 1999, some of Beverly's property was found near the Narimba boat ramp on the Fitzroy River. A strap on the bag was broken and it had been weighed down with rocks. Beverly was nowhere to be found. Richard Grit was high on their suspect list, but still, they had few leads. Bank accounts hadn't been touched over weeks and there were no sightings. Police were now wondering if there was some sort of link between the disappearance of Beverly, Julie and Natasha. Now we come to Sylvia Marie Benedetti, born in 1980 in Melbourne, a natural beauty whose father tried to rape her at age eight. This fucked her up and she became a troubled child becoming a runaway and taking drugs. She ended up in Rockhampton, either staying with a boyfriend or doing it rough when they didn't get along. She started seeing other guys, but generally she was on the street doing what she could to survive. On the night of the 18th of April, 1998, she disappeared. Her friends tried looking for her, but she was nowhere to be found. Just four days later, on the 22nd of April, 1999, nine-year-old Kira Steinhardt. She was walking home from school as she'd been allowed since her birthday just 10 days before. She decided to take a shortcut through a vacant lot. A resident across the road saw a man in yellow shorts approach her from behind and hit her to the ground. As it was long grass, the girl was now out of view but she could see the man who hit her pushing up and down. He was raping her. The resident called her husband to have a look, but as it was long grass, he walked back inside. Couldn't see anything. Nothing there. I'm going back inside. She then saw the guy get up and walk away. Soon after, they saw a red car in the paddock. The guy had come back and was now putting her in the boot or the trunk. The residents that saw all of this happening, now this is amazing, they didn't call police for 33 minutes. They didn't want to get involved. Fuck's sake. They would cop a lot of shit over this. The fact that they were too scared even to make an anonymous emergency call. She saw the guy wallop the girl, have sex with her, walk off, get his car, and then put her in the boot and drive away. They told police that they'd noticed the same guy the day before following her. They thought it was her father. They were still unsure to call police. I mean, fuck's sake. A huge search instantly was underway, but it wouldn't be long before they had a suspect in custody. With a media release at 7pm describing the man wanted that was wearing yellow shorts, they got a lucky break. A prison officer on his way to work had seen a guy in distinctive yellow shorts walking along near where Kira had been attacked. He recognised him as Leonard Fraser. I mean, who the fuck wears yellow shorts? By 10pm, they were at Fraser's flat and took him and his de facto Chrissy rate downtown. Fraser protested, saying he wasn't a pedo kitty fiddler. Chrissy, though, she told police that earlier in the day she'd been with Fraser visiting a friend's house and that around 3pm he left and was gone for a couple of hours. When he got back, he changed from the white t-shirt and yellow shorts that he'd been wearing for a couple of days. She then told police how they left their friend's place, drove to bushland near a creek and he stopped the car. He went to the boot or trunk And when she looked back, she could see he was carrying a big doll with a yellow shirt and green skirt with blonde hair. This described the missing Kira to a T. She was wearing her school uniform. She then said that Fraser saw her looking, put down the doll, came round to the passenger's window, belted her in the face a few times and said that if she looked back one more time, he would kill her. He then went off into the bush with a doll and came back empty-handed. Police now have enough evidence to charge Fraser with the abduction of Kira, but most of all, they want to try to see if she's still alive. When questioned further, Fraser tells police that he wasn't the perpetrator, that it was a guy he knew called Squeaky. Searches of his car found traces of blood in the boot, and several items of interest would be found in his flat. The day after Kira was abducted, the 23rd of August 1998, two workers going through the derelict Queensland hotel that was being readied for demolition, they come across room 13. Inside, there was bloodstained walls and bloodstained carpet. Some of the blood looked like it had been wiped over with a towel in a vain attempt of cleaning. They contact police who attend the hotel and they find what they think is a gruesome murder scene. A thorough search of the hotel would find clothing hidden in an old chest freezer that belonged to Sylvia Benedetti. They wouldn't find her body. While Fraser was locked up, a former prisoner came to police and he wanted to act as a stooge or a snitch to help get some info about where the missing, where missing Kira was. He'd met Fraser previously when he was inside. He was put in the cell with Fraser to get him to talk. Fraser told him he needed someone to get a knife hidden in a peg box in his garage and get rid of it, or he was fucked if police found it. Police, of course, found the knife And it had traces of blood on it that would end up matching Kira's. Blood from the car would match Kira and it also would match Sylvia Benedetti. So now they could link two missing girls to Fraser as their blood was in his car. Police add a murder charge to the abduction charge in relation to Kira and Fraser tells police he can help them find a body. He takes him to the creek where he dumped her. Police recover her remains and inform her mother that she's no longer missing but is dead. How awful. Fraser is then put in with another crim and starts to talk about Natasha, Julie, Beverly, Sylvia and Kira. He describes how he knew them, how he murdered them and where he hid the bodies. Over four months, This latest snitch is able to provide enough information for police to charge Fraser with the murder of Sylvia Benedetti from the blood in his car and the information given by the prison informer. His murder trial for Kira Steinhardt was held and he would be sentenced to life. So with the other missing women, police were able to conclude the following connections to Fraser. Now remember, it was like their exes or de facto's were all the primary suspects until they were able to link all these missing women together. Natasha Ryan, that's the 14-year-old, knew Fraser from around town as he was always offering drugs and booze to young kids. Also, Natasha's mum picked him out from photos as the guy that was always at the bowling alley hanging around Natasha he used to take some of their team to the bowling alley. Julie Turner, she knew Fraser for a while and was going to leave Michael McConaughey and move in with him. Beverly Lego and her boyfriend Richard Gritt were friends with Fraser and at one time lived across the street from him. Richard would get the shits with Fraser and... Who had They both served time inside together as he was always trying to get into Beverly's pants. Now, Sylvia Marie Benedetti, she was the 19-year-old. She was last seen sitting with a guy that was identified as Fraser by someone that knew him from prison. Now, they'd known each other for some time. So although he didn't say he was responsible for the murders, I mean, that was squeaky, he could show police where the bodies were. Sylvia's skeletal remains, now they were found by a member of the public, partially buried in sand at Sandy Point near Rockhampton on about the 20th of November 2000. There was no clothing on the body. She'd apparently been struck with a heavy instrument on the left side of the face a number of times. The header injuries were her cause of death. Now, Fraser later was able to show police where he'd left her remains. Now this detail was kept from the public, so he couldn't have known the spot unless he was the killer. Then Fraser took them to find Beverly Lego. Beverly's skeletal remains were located on the 21st of December 2000, lying on the ground, covered by Lantana in bushland at Nanking Creek. There was no clothing associated with the remains. A bra and black panties were tied around the neck area. The facial area of the skull showed substantial injury. A a pathologist assigned as the cause of death ligature, strangulation and head injuries. Then there's Julie Turner's skeletal remains. A skull missing were found on the 21st of December 2001 in Bushland at Kinker Beach, east of Rockhampton. Fraser directed the police to the site and had previously drawn a map accurately showing the location. The cause of death could not be established because of the condition of the skeleton. Fraser reckoned that he met her outside the nightclub and gave her a lift. They got into an argument, he struck her in the throat and killed her. He then left her body in the Nanking Creek area. Now, Fraser couldn't tell him where Natasha was. Now, but they found some of her jewelry at his house in possession of Christie, his de facto. Now, Fraser was able to tell police things that only the murderer could know. Such one thing was Julie's Velcro wallet, and also about the broken strap on Beverly's bag. These were things that were kept out of the media, so only he could know about them. Police would send him to trial for the murder of Beverly Lego, Natasha Ryan, Sylvia Benedetti, and the manslaughter of Julie Turner. While the trial was in progress in 2003, now this is amazing news broke that Natasha Ryan had been found hiding out with, guess it, her boyfriend Scott Black. While this was fantastic news for the family of Natasha, who was now 19 and had been missing for five years, it put in doubt some of the evidence given by the prison informers. Now, thank God it didn't. Fraser would be convicted for the murders of Beverly Lego, Sylvia Benedetti, and the manslaughter of Julie Turner. He was the first person to get the maximum sentence for manslaughter in Queensland. He got manslaughter because there was not enough evidence to convict him of murder. He was never to be released. So this is 2003. The problem is, Fraser died of a heart attack on the 1st of January, 2007, aged 55, so he really didn't do much time inside at all. But Fraser, like so many known serial killers, practiced trophy collecting. Police found a large number of women's underwear in his flat as well as three ponytails of hair from three different women. Now, none of those could be traced to the victims or known missing persons. So what do you reckon of this bloke? Bit of a maggot, isn't he? I mean, that 21-year sentence where he was let out seven years non-parole and he was let out in seven years, there were all these prison guards, all these police saying, you can't do it, you can't do it. But they let him out. And as we often see, these maggots that are let out like this, that even all the bloody prison officers, all the police, they just know he's scum. They let him out and he progresses and escalates to murder. All i got to say is I hope he's burning in hell. So that's the end of this week's show. Now we get to shout out for Patreon. It's a big thanks to the return of Lauren Burke. Thank you, Lauren. And again, this week, a shout-out to Lisa Pepper. Lisa, please get back to me on your email so I can send you your mug. I just want to check your address and whichever one you want. Thank you. Also, there's another email there for, I think it's Erin, just on one of the water bottles. Please get back to me. Thank you all so much for your support and thank you, so much to all the present and past Patreon supporters of the island. It really does make a difference, as you know. Now, during the first or second week of the month, I do reach out to anyone that qualifies for a reward of a mug or a shirt to confirm your address and what item you like. Mugs are for three months at $10, shirts three months on $20, and for $5, bucks, you will get stickers sent after the first month of joining now we know true crime island is a totally listener islander supported podcast i do keep it ad free as i know you don't like the ads i don't want to deal with advertisers either if you want to support the island financially for as little as one dollar a month what can you get for a dollar a month nowadays you too can become a patron. go to patreon.com forward slash true crime island and check out the levels and the rewards there. Alternatively, you can do one-off donations. That's paypal.me forward slash truecrimeisland. Also, you can support the island by getting hold of some merch, such as T-shirts, hoodies, beach towels, fantastic tote bags, but my favourite, I always say, <laughs> is the mugs of rage. All available from truecrimeisland.threadless.com. Links on the webpage, truecrimeisland.com if you're not sure. Remember, don't order the black mugs until further notice. I will be taking the shop down maybe in the next couple of weeks. I want to just do a refresh to just put some more stuff up and change things around a little bit. I do have keychains, lapel pins, stickers, and beer koozies. I've got a few left, which you need to contact me directly for. That's cambo at truecrimeisland.com. Now, I only got a few stickers left. I will be ordering some more when I get back from Thailand. I am going to Thailand this Saturday, which is why I'm going to have a week's break or so. So anyone who's supposed to get stickers for this month may have to wait just a few more weeks till I get new stock. Now, now I'm, I'm rambling a bit. You don't have to spend money to support the island. You can also rate and review and tell your friends, family and workmates about the island If they don't know how to tune in, just show them. That's what I really would love to everybody out there listening tonight to tell one friend. Now, this week we have a shout-out for Woody Overton's Real Life Real Crime. Check it out. I think you'll like it. The promo's at the end of the show. Now, you can search for True Crime Island on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram and join the closed group on Facebook. So that's about it for the show tonight. Don't forget about the promo. Lots of love to Maggie James. And I'm your host, Cambo. You've been listening to True Crime Island. And as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night and boom, fuckalanga.